Friedman's Factory. Friedman's Factory. Friedman's Factory. In episode 22 of the podcast, the topic is Friedman's Factory. What is no code? Our guest is Mark Friedman, lean practice leader at Tulip for our new segment, Friedman's Factory which you will always recognize within other augmented episodes because of especially groovy music. Friedman's Factory will take us deep into the shop floor philosophy of Kaizen and with that into the heart of manufacturing excellence. In this conversation, we talk about what is no code? What existed before? What difference does it make? And no code versus low code? Augmented is a podcast for leaders Hosted by futurist Trunar Nuenheim. Presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented. Upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations. Mark, how are you doing? Doing well. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about no-code. What's all the fuss about? Well, I mean, honestly, I hadn't really heard much about no I'm not really a programmer at all. Uh, I'm a manufacturer primarily. That was my background. I mean, I've always been with computers I think like I was the Excel person you know at my last companies and so on but uh, I think so I'm going to talk about no code in the context of solving problems in manufacturing because that's where my my head is at I know there's a lot of no code solutions out there where you can create software without having any programming knowledge and that's, that's like the, the gist of it, I, as far as I understand. You can basically create software solutions to whatever without having to know how to write, you know, whatever language they use, uh, which is like, I don't even know what languages are, but like intense languages that require studying and computer science degrees. Um, Maybe we should start with one thing uh, that I don't know that is entirely clear to me. So you said, you know, you're not a software programmer yet. You now are deeply interested in 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 these things Wh- where did you come from <laughs> what what was your uh, inroads into uh this now uh no code environment so you you said you're, you're a manufacturer what what was that like so manufacturing i sort of fell into love with manufacturing i didn't study it uh i just like understanding things and fixing them so when i joined manufacturing company it was filled with problems and systems and so much to learn and understand and do and build it was really really cool and they had problems um and i found them using things like um you know paper like i I don't think a paper but they were like writing like their output like how many parts they did on a piece of paper and then every day i'd have to go to like this piece of paper and collect it and then write it into excel it was wild so like i wanted to know how many they were making all the time so like, you know, for the first time I opened up Microsoft Access and I made a little form. I had no idea what I was doing. It was all Google. Like, how do I do this? And then I had them using this program to input data. And then like fast forward five or six years and the whole like factory is outfitted with like dashboards and like access databases and all this sorts of stuff. And, um, 
you know, and it would just occurred to me that like the reason that this is that they these things are proliferating throughout the building is because they're solving problems and they're helping, you know? So I'm like, people can use software to solve problems and it's not really like accessible to people. Um, but I was really frustrated with access for so many reasons. Like it's, you know, this, it's not awesome. Um, and again, I'm, just, I'm, to, I'm a total hack. I'm like learning on the fly. Um, but then like other companies I worked at and so on and went to, I just kept finding this pattern where it's like people want to solve problems. And a lot of the problems they want to solve could be solved with a software solution. But no one in the building is a software engineer. You know, no one, no one can program. So these options aren't available to you. Like you're using whiteboards and paper and whatever you can because, you know, you got to get it done. And then if you want software, like you're going to hire someone and they're not going to know anything about your process. And they're just going to try and like build you some software. And I mean, it's going to take them a while and like, they're not going to be able to iterate on it. It's so different than the way that a facility, manufacturing facility works. Like I'll make, I made the same like workstation like five times because the first one was like, okay. And the second one was better. And then, you know, we got new material and this one was even better than that. And then, you know, like you can, you're, you're changing, like your demand changes, your products change, your processes change, you know, like it's all changing. So like your software needs to be able to adapt and like no code just lets you do that with, in ways that I don't even understand. Like, so, like a lot of the stuff that people program in, in Tulip, which is where I work, um, like these guys are geniuses. I have no idea what's happening when I, when I like solve something with Tulip, you know, like it's just working. Like, I don't know how I'm connected to that machine necessarily, but I can use that and it works. And now I can solve that problem. So it's just like a really great tool um, that's like democratized, I guess. Like you can, you can actually do it if you want to. Um, so interesting because if you think about, uh, there, there's two problems, right? The two worlds meeting is like the world of manufacturing, which may not necessarily be understood by the average IT programmer. I mean, or definitely isn't understood by the average IT programmer. Let's go that far. And then you have the world of IT programming, which at least historically wasn't so present, uh, even if you were an engineer in manufacturing, a process engineer, right? Mm-hmm. You, you were not coding. Uh, yeah. Or, or at least, you know, a while back, you weren't coding very much. And there's also you, you, a huge gap. Like, it's not just that these worlds uh, are so far apart from each other, or have been. I mean, there are some things like ERPs and stuff. We can talk about that, but like, or like MES and things of that nature. But like, these worlds, let's just say, they're far apart from each other from this because of the code barrier, right? And in the middle of that, there is a huge gap. It's like a wide chasm of like technology that you're used to using in your everyday life that doesn't exist in manufacturing. You know what I mean? Like I'm so connected to my phone and my personal life. And like everyone I know is as well. Like I don't know the last time I called a pizza place to order pizza or like any of this stuff, you know, and, and like, you know, Uber and all this stuff, like you can just like use your phone to solve a problem. That's very common that you would normally have to do something different for. Um, and like, no one's doing that for manufacturing, at least not that I've seen. There's so many places where that just doesn't exist because maybe the problems are so specific, the processes are so special, quote unquote, you know, but hmm. really it's, there are simple problems that you just need a very 
you just need you, you could use software to solve them. Now there's a ton of problems in manufacturing that don't have anything to do with software, and like I'm not talking about those ones. You know, I'm talking about like a tool. I'm talking about no code and like how a tool is now suddenly available to you, and like you should take advantage of it. Like, and one thing that's interesting about no, like it's not just no code, right? Because it's also a changing environment. So let me just give one example. And that'll stop. But like the example is Creeform, right? In manufacturing, there's this stuff called Creeform or like extruded T-slotted, like 80-20 or T-slotted aluminum extrusion. Like people basically want to build workstations or whatever, fixtures, device, like, like things, and they maybe don't have like a workshop that they can work in. Like they're maybe not like trained furniture makers or whatever or tool makers. They're just people who want to build a workstation. So what do you do? They have this stuff called Creeform that lets you build whatever you want with like a pipe cutter and like an Allen key. And just Google it. Look at look at Creeform. This stuff, people make all kinds of crazy imaginations, you know? And that's the need, right? That's the exact same need I'm talking about, but that's a physical one. I'm talking about the software one. It's the same thing. So like they made this Creeform stuff or whatever to, to make it so people could just create their imagination to solve a problem. No code lets you do that with software. It's fascinating. But I but I do wonder sometimes, like, is this whole digital thing also sometimes so tempting that you're overdoing it? Because you you were pointing to the fact that paper is great sometimes. And I'm just wondering what prompts you to say, oh, there should be code here, versus it's actually a problem that can be solved in classic lean. Like it's, it's actually a yeah. process and, and there's a leaner process and we could gain like 20% efficiency just by coming up with a better process. Yeah. We might gain 23% efficiency by doing a digital process. But, or is it always the case that once you digitize a process, especially with a no-code solution where you kind of control a process and the inputs and you kind of, you created it so you, you're still owning it even though there's a technology there helping you with it. Is that always better? Or uh-huh. you were onto like some things that are actually just simple enough that they can be just solved right there and there. I mean, uh, the answer is definitely no, it's not always better. I mean, it's, you have to look at the problem you're trying to solve. I mean, that's really all it is. Like you, just cause you have some software that you could make or some Creeform or whatever that you could make something out of, like doesn't mean it's going to solve the problem you're talking about. And if you do, if you do that before you ever look at the problem, you're probably going to be making a different problem occur. Like you have to actually look at the problem and think about it and talk to people who experience it and figure out what's happening. And then you look to what you can do to, to solve it. And all I'm saying is you now have software as an option where you didn't before. And there's like a lot of problems around communication or visual management or whatever where where software is very helpful. Like think about work order tracking, right? If you're tracking a work order through a job shop, like I, I lived as a planner for a period of time in a machine shop and like I had to walk around the building all the time trying to find parts because they were in various stages of processing and like if I didn't do that every day then I didn't know where stuff was and I might have to make like I might have to pull things out of machines and put new things in like it had to be on that so you know 
like that problem, I would think that I need to have an updating system of where things are so that I can prioritize them. I also need an updating like queue of what should go in next for people to know like the, like what should happen, you know? Like for like a person at a machine to say, this is the job that is here, I need to do this one, this is a hot job or whatever, right? Like that's a software problem, but if I didn't have software, what I might do is come up with like a, a rack where, you know, it's first in, first out, you put the paper in, the first one in there, and then the second one in, you have to do the first one first, and then maybe the planner would go review that. You can be very disciplined in your physical handling of travelers and so forth to make this work. Um, but as a planner, I wouldn't know where everything is without physically going to see things. So the problem I wanted to solve was like, I want to know where everything is without having to go look for it, you know? So that's a soft, I could use a software, so I could use software to solve that. But what if I don't have that software, then I have to like, how can I, so it's typically not an option, but now I'm saying it is, and it's not always better. There are plenty of times when it's like, yo, just laminate that piece of paper, that work instruction never changes, stick it there. Don't make them touch a screen or anything. Just hang the, like, don't even use that. Just like make the actual workstation like pokey oaked or something. So you can only build it in this way. Like that's better than a tablet, you know, and a sensor or whatever. Like, so like it totally depends on what you're trying to solve. Um, and it's your job as a problem solver to understand it well enough so that you can help improve it. It strikes me that it's so important for, well, certainly if you're going to build a software system in manufacturing, you, you need to be talking to people on the shop floor. Like there are so many problems that you can't really imagine if you're sitting there at a desk with your code trying to create a product and you don't talk to people on the floor with the variety of the garden variety of problems that you're mm -hmm. going to encounter on the shop floor. What are some of the things that you have been able to tell the software developers now that you work in a software company? that they aren't necessarily always aware of? What are some of those small things that has to go into even a no-code software definitely to make it usable by people on the floor as opposed to just, you know, you think you're designing the perfect uh, software flow, but it actually doesn't solve a problem that exists? I mean, the thing that I find myself having to reiterate to myself and to others and just constantly remind myself of is that this thing that we're making right now, which by the way, doesn't take long to make, um, you know, it's, you spend more time actually figuring out what you should be making than like actually making the thing. When you put it out there, there's no expectation that it's going to be right. I'm like, do not assume that it's going to work. Assume that the person that you're giving this to like you, they, that person should know that you've listened to them and that what they're seeing is a result of their feedback and your time with them and your understanding of the problem. But then that's just the beginning. Now you need to actually like watch it with them, be there and see what needs to change and then make more changes. This isn't, this is a, you're on a journey now of hmm. continuously improving the software in the environment because the environment is going to change later too. They might move that cell. They might hire new people. They might change the standard of work in that area. There might be a lot of things going on that have to, has to happen. You know, companies make new products. Like they have product cycles, like life cycles. It's going to change. 
and like maybe the processes will too. Maybe they get new machines and equipment. Who knows? So you know, this software is going to change. And your first attempt, I mean, chances are if you did a really good job, you're going to be pretty close. Um, but you should operate under the assumption that you're just getting started and you should be changing this. And then that's going to further engage like, culturally the people who are a part of that. And then it's going to allow them to start looking. They're going to start looking for new things. You know, they're going to say, oh, well, this really helped me with this problem. I feel ownership over this process. I'm going to be bought into it. You know, I'm going to like support it. I'm a champion of this. And then I'm going to go and look for other opportunities to improve. And like, that is everything. It's literally everything to me. You know, what you're explaining is fascinating to me because in another life, in another context, this is called scope creep. And it is something that mentors will tell startups, software startups, is scope creep you have to you know get away from it as fast as possible don't even let your customer talk you into making all these customizations and it's dangerous and you're talking about it as if it is the essence of what you're asked to deliver how does that all scale well when you have to adapt that much so scope creep is a problem you know like um but i would i would put that as a problem in Oh man, let me see if I can describe this. So like scope creep, if you're trying to solve something, it's very important that you like eventually during your problem solving activity with a group and however you're doing this, there's definitely ways of doing this that um, I'm more happy with than others. But as you do this, um, you know, you want to make sure that if something is out of scope, that don't let it distract you from making this the improvement that you've decided upon. You've made, you've decided on a problem for right now you want to solve. So solve that one problem now, but eventually, like once you, once you've, like you have to focus on a thing. So focus on that thing, and then don't let, then don't let scope creep occur. But once you do that, you're looking for waste. You're looking for opportunity, and I encourage that scope to go like all over the place. That is, that is, you're looking for any opportunity to improve that is going to make an impact, and if you can find low hanging fruit, go after those. You know, so um, I and like the more people on board with that, the better, because, you know, especially the closer it is to Gemba, as closer it is to, to like the people doing the work, if they can get engaged, they start improving their own stuff. I mean, this is this is the culture you want. And no code lives right in there. Can you give me a quick overview of all these terms that you're using? You've mentioned many, many times Kaizen, Gemba. Mm-hmm. And lean, and then you know we've talked about no code at a sort of length. These are many of these are either Japanese management terms, and they have traveled countries and decades. What what have they meant to you? These these various concepts. Uh, I know kaizen is very dear to you. Yeah. Uh, so so kaizen. For me. Kaizen's probably like the thing that I, I feel most passionately about. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not Japanese, but I've spent uh, time with, you know, like Shin consultants in this sort of business and like read about it and have lived it, I feel like. But, you know, it's two like words, I guess. I don't really know much about the language, but Kai is change and Zen is like good or for the better. So it's basically saying like change for the better. Uh, and then, you know, the English version of that would be like continuous improvement. 
Um, and you know, Zen is like Zen, right? But that sort of idea, that's what, that's what the Zen piece of it is. And Kai has changed. So it's like that idea, whatever you embody that idea and cut and, and change. So making things better. And then there's another one, which is like change for the worse. I forget what it's, I forget what that one is, but like, it's, that's a real thing too. Um, uh, so like, just because you're doing a Kaizen doesn't mean you're actually doing Kaizen. So Kaizen is like really important that like, you're literally trying to improve the thing. Uh, not just because like Kaizen means like to some places they have these Kaizen events, which is like a week long event and you do a kickoff and you have this thing and I'm nothing, nothing against structured Kaizen. Like, like I'm a big fan of the saying Kaizen, the Kaizen, which is you always want to get better at the way that you're trying to get better. Um, but like it's become productized in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's like, we're going to do our standard work tool for this week. And then at the end, we're going to like celebrate how much money we saved. And like, maybe you didn't solve a problem. And like, that's totally not the idea of Kaizen, you know? Cool. I believe Kayaku was the word you were looking for, the change for the worse. Yeah, maybe, probably. I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Have you seen a lot of that happening? Change for the worse? Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of what you were saying earlier about like, um, you know, would you just, is it always better to use like a, a, you know, digital tool or whatever? And it's no, it's not like you could just be, it's not always better just to like, just apply, like you don't apply, you don't take a hammer and just hit everything with it. You, you hit nails with hammers, you know? So like, <laughs> what are you hitting? Use the tool yeah. that you want to hit. Use the tool that's going to work. So, all right. So we've talked a little bit about how to find the right tool. If you have settled on, okay, no code is going to be the, a solution for some of my problems. You, you're an interesting case because you told me earlier you sort of you you went looking for for those kinds of digital tools and then you suddenly found it. Now, mm-hmm. as you found it, can you tell me about your journey in becoming comfortable with it? Because you 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 said yourself you're a manufacturer, you're not a coder, and even though it says no code, surely even the users th- there's a little bit of a journey. To, to try to become comfortable with this approach. How was that for you? Comfortable with the approach of... Of no code, of, of embracing a digital tool to do something when you're not a programmer. Like, how, how, how did you find, for instance, the Tulip tool? How did you get comfortable with it and started really implementing it and, and making changes on the shop floor using that approach? How was that, what was that like for you? Did you I take mean, a course? Uh, Did you just no, ex- no. get exposed to it on the shop floor and, and sort of like learn it online? How, how did you pick it up? Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my journey. Like I said earlier, I was using like Access, right? Yep. Um, to do a lot of the things I would do because it was the only thing that I could create a UI for, you know? And I tried yep. playing with Python and there's like a couple of libraries like tkinter is one of them and that lets you make a user interface but it's like you actually have to code and it's just not like something that i'm going to be able to do very very well at like the way that i need to so i was you know i was at this like internal company conference and i was talking to people about like this idea i'm like we need to make like software like, let me show you some of these solutions that we've made with Access and Excel and whatever. And, like, they're so effective. Like, we need to, like, do something like this to enable people to solve this. And we have other people, like some companies I see, like, hire software engineers and they kind of work on the floor and they have little skunk works and they make their own software. And I saw that, too. And I was like, this is, like, this is real. I mean, this gap is real. This is real. We need to do something about this. 
And I was like, it doesn't exist. Let me Google it for you. And I Googled and then Tulip popped up. And I had been Googling this for years as I was building it. Like this isn't the first time I thought about it. This is just the first time I said like, we need to make this. And I found Tulip and I was just like, I gotta go. Let me look at this for a second. I gotta talk to you later. <laughs> and I started like looking at it and I was like, no way, this, this can't be, it. like, I'm so skeptical. I was like, this can't be it. There's no way that this company is for real. Like, I don't believe it, but if they are real, like I gotta, I gotta know about it. So I, you know, and it's from my hometown. It has the 3d printer that like Natan made this, like was part of form labs. And so there's a bunch of like signs that were like, this company is cool. So I just got a factory kit. I had to do a, I was doing a Kaizen like that week anyway. And I wanted to make, make a kidding cell to solve a problem, which could he, like, I, I was literally about to buy an Arduino and, or like a Raspberry Pi and like try and program like a light kit thing. And then I saw they had one and I looked up like light kit vendors and it's all the old, it's all the other way of doing it, right? You have to like hire a company and they come in and it's expensive and it's like, I need this this week, you know? So I got the gateway, I brought it home that weekend, I played with it and like, I was like, okay, this is maybe like, like I'm trying to understand and like, it's kind of weird. Like, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? I wasn't like totally happy with it. This was a couple of years ago. It was like a year ago, maybe. And then, um, but you know, after struggling a little bit for that weekend or that like day, uh, at the end it worked. So like I brought this thing home, I played around with this thing for the first time I've ever seen it. And I had a light kit, I picked a light cell like ready to roll. And then like, it's still in use today. So like, I was like, I gotta, I gotta talk to these people, you know, I gotta, wow. I gotta figure it out. So that's what, what, what exactly did this light kid do? Uh, we had this system basically where like a, a, a person with tribal knowledge and associate who had been there for a long time. Um, only these people could like decipher a packet and the packet had a bunch of part numbers on it. And they would take a highlighter, they would highlight the pieces that like meant something to them. And then they would like gather pieces from different places and put them on a cart and give them to somebody else. And that was like what that, and if that, that person was like the most important person, if that person was there, the cell wouldn't, wouldn't be there. And there were problems too. Cause like, you know, it's hard to decipher this. Like there's no real, like, like, I don't know how they're doing it, but they know it. So basically what this thought with this solution did was you would scan a part number or a serial number it would look up a bill of materials and then all the materials that could be available were on the shelf and it would just light up the ones that were associated with that so like we went from having like now anyone can do it and it's so much easier wow you know yeah so no code in that sense can also be threatening. Have you ever experienced it as threatening to people's expertise? Mm. I mean, that person didn't like doing, having to be responsible for like memorizing these parts and then getting blamed when there was like shortages and stuff. So like that person was, but I have seen people think that like, it's going to take my jobs. Like I have the threatening piece is definitely, um, and it can be used in a threatening way. So like, they're not wrong, but like the threatening piece is like, you want me to scan in and scan out? You want to like, like time me? Like, why are you like watching me? This kind of thing, you know, like mm -hmm. that sort of activity, um, is threatening. 
And sometimes people do it in a threatening way. Like they will say that the operators don't care and that, you know, they're taking advantage of their lunch breaks or whatever. And who knows, right? So sometimes people are using that to like discipline people. Um, those aren't the problems that I'm interested in solving. So if you're trying to solve those problems, um, you know, there's like some sort of cultural, who knows what's going on there. I don't even want to guess, but like, um, you know, I'm trying to help people. So yeah. it, sh it should be not be threatening, but I've definitely seen ex examples where like, especially the timing of people, like it can be threatening, especially if people are maybe up to no good. Some people probably are. I don't know. If you are set on learning no code, so you just told us uh, about how, you know your way, what is a recommended way to get exposed to this stuff? I mean, your way was you had a problem, you thought it might be solved by, or you, you were frustrated, I guess, with uh, some of the old methods that would have entailed you having to buy a lot of stuff and wait for people to show up and, and, and then implement it for you. So you wanted to do something yourself. What what is the best way to get exposed to to no code? Is it just to experiment on your own, or is there stuff available online to read about? You know how it has been implemented before, best practices, or if you are a small company that hasn't really digitized, uh, or or you realize we have digitized, but there are so many issues with this particular old school way of digitizing, and and you're finding all these problems. What is the first step? towards the no code world i mean i well one of the, the question is a little bit difficult because it's kind of like what is the how do you learn something you know everyone has a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way to learn yeah. something so like my yeah. way like i'm like huge on youtube tutorials you know um i'm huge on like we have like tulip has a ton of resources you could go to university.tulip you can go to community and talk to people um for me like i just want to tinker and then I'm thinking about a problem I want to solve. So if you're just tinkering to, for tinkering's sake, then I don't know to what end that will bring you. Like, I mean, more power to you. People learn that way, you know? I don't know. But for me, I, I'm really interested in, like, solving a thing. It motivates me. So I get really in, interested in solving, like, oh, I need, like, I need to figure out how to do this. So, like how do I figure this out? And then I just start searching and looking and, and like hacking away at it. So like for me, it's really important that I have a problem I want to solve. I think a harder, a harder thing um, maybe than like, cause like no code, like it, it should be easy. You know, it's like, there isn't really code there. So like, it's like learning any other program, like, you know, like, I don't know what other programs there are, but like, you know, Adobe Photoshop or something like you get, yeah, there's experts in it, but like, it's going to take you a little bit of a learning curve to figure out how to learn, like use it. And like, it's kind of like, that's any software sort of like that way. So like you have to get over that hump um, in this like material for you, like YouTube or whatever. Um, and like, don't even, you don't have to use Tulip either. You can use whatever you want. Like, I don't know, there's other ones out there. I just think Tulip is awesome. So like, I would recommend use that. <laughs> it's like free. So just download it. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is the harder part might be like seeing the problem that you want to solve. You know, and I, and I don't know, like, I think there's only two, like, maybe there's two ways to get there, like, to, like, see the problem. Either one, be very empathetic to people, you know, so, like, like listen to people on the floor and look, like, imagine what it's like to do that job. And if you do that, you might find examples where you're doing things that are painful. And if you can imagine 
like you have to imagine too. So like so maybe there's three things like be empathetic, then like be creative and imaginative. You have to like imagine that there is something better out there that maybe involves a screen or like a scanner or um, you know a piece of like a piece of paper. Like imagine some like other future state. And then the last one would be like I guess maybe experience. So like the more you see this sort of stuff and best practices and like problems, there are definitely patterns. Like I can talk, like I'll talk to someone and I'll like start imagining their environment and then I'll just start guessing at problems because I like, what is it like when this happens? Like, oh yeah, that's a huge problem because these patterns exist. Like ultimately people are processing materials through a value stream. So like, you know, there are patterns there. Hmm. Where's no code going? Uh, Mark, you're, you, you're framing it like, it's a problem-oriented tool, so it evolves with the problems. So we would follow from that, perhaps, in my thinking, that the no-code software vendors and uh, problems will have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. So the future of no-code is essentially embedded with sort of the problems that people on the shop floor are going to have in the, in the years ahead. Like, there's no real direction there apart from what, what problems start emerging or is there kind of a direction of no code? Is it going towards like an all encompassing system that is still very modular, but, but it becomes a large animal that takes over, uh, you know, areas that, that would previously be covered by either other software tools or indeed there were no tools for it. Like wh wh where do you see this animal? I don't know how, how, what metaphor you want to use for, mm -hmm. for the introduction of no code on the shop floor. Uh, but if you just imagine how it's going to evolve, what is your best guess on how a thing like no code uh, kind of evolves and, and, and moves on, on the shop floor, you know, a few years from now? Well, I do want to try and answer that, even though like admittedly it's like science fiction to me and I have no idea, but I do have some interesting, like maybe questions about it. But one thing that I'll say is that like a couple of years from now, like, this gap is still there. Like most companies have these very basic gaps that like, you don't even need, I don't even need to think about the next version of what no code is going to like do or how it's going to be, how this animal is going to evolve because like the manufacturing animal is needing to evolve into no code still. Like people don't realize they have this ability. So like once that happens, then I'd be interested to see what the new, the new, like the, the people at the edge of the pack are doing but right now the people at the edge of the pack are like embracing these new solutions you know so like that still has to happen and and it's happening and i'm seeing it and it's like pretty exciting but by and large it's not happening most people like they're still using excel for this thing you know what i mean like mm -hmm. excel is not a tool that you want to like deploy to your factory <laughs> you know what i mean so like that so like first thing is definitely let it let it evolve let people recognize that this tool exists. And then like, let's say eventually to answer your actual question, like how does it change after that? I mean, I don't know, but like, you know, certainly like monolithic software solutions. I mean, there's a place for having like a, like a financial system of record and all this business and like ERPs are awesome. I actually really like ERPs, but like the way that you interact with software on the floor, like, should like is going to um 
be this modular like way where you get to make it's going to do exactly what you want like there's no reason to accept anything less than exactly what you're imagining and want right because you can and it doesn't take any like anything except for like the will to make that occur like you don't need like an education to make it happen so like you should have exactly what you want and then there's a notion of like community right so like these there are patterns i can imagine like a shared community of these I wish that there was um, like, you know, an incentive to share best practices with your competitors, I guess. <laughs> so like maybe this not going to be this community, but like, let's say people get along and people just want to improve stuff like that community. Um, maybe it could be monetized. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's like people out there who like do this. I have no idea. But, you know, like the fact that things can be social and shared and like I can press a button and you can get the same thing I just used. This is on. This is wild, you know, and like. If we don't take advantage of that, then that's a mistake, you know? So, you know, especially with companies that own multiple companies, you know, they can share best practices and like totally take off, you know, um, or like larger organizations, they have the ability to share best practices. And like, that's going to be really huge for it too, because, you know, we've seen great wins over in this area, download and use it over in this area. And then the next day they have it. And now it's like standardized, like it's really, really pretty neat. So I see something like that happening. Um, I'm not huge, honestly, on like the wearable like headsets that like display like things. I mean, it sounds very minority report like, and that's kind of cool. Um, but you know, the problems people are facing, like I most often see aren't that advanced. I don't need to work in a, like a hollow chamber. Like I need to know where my part is. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's funny you say that because so much of the, sci-fi fueled hype around a lot of technology including industrial technology it is in this AR VR space where mm -hmm. the sense is like we're right even this idea of the augmented worker in a fairly simple sense at least when it gets visualized people imagine the super gadget yeah right right the thing usually a wearable yeah. whether it is a you know, glasses form factor. And typically it's like a form factor of something already existing. It's like an earpiece or it's like, you know, glasses that turn, you know, into uh, computers and screens, or it's like some sort of headset that is semi immersive uh, or, you know, even the exosuit stuff, right? It is mm -hmm. like slightly um, in, in kind of the superpower category. When yeah. you look at manufacturing superpowers on the shop floor, you see something somewhat less uber cool. Yeah, I just want to know, like, the cell that I'm supporting, if they have a problem, I want them to do something simple, like push a button, and then I want to be notified immediately that they had an issue. I want to see it visually somewhere, like a light. I want to know how long it's been in that condition for. I want them to know that I've responded to them and I'm coming to help. And then I want to like have that information be displayed to show how often is this happening and what is a Pareto of my reasons for this? You know, and then I want to solve those things. Like that's all I want. But right now I'm walking around, someone has a problem and they just like deal with it or walk away and try and find someone to help them. And like none of that gets recorded. Like, I don't know why, I don't even know that it happened. You know, like, this is a problem. So, like, I just want to know that. Like, that's, 
that's basic, you know, and like go audit 10 facilities and tell me how many people do that. Like Got basically it. none are going to do that. Yeah. And like they should, it's like, it's like a fundamental, <laughs> like, you know, thing that you should do for operational excellence. If some, if there's a problem, you should be notified of the problem and keep track of the fact that it occurred. <laughs> and like communicate like this is not like you know it's not this other stuff i mean it could be like don't get me wrong like sure give me an exoskeleton i'll go do whatever but like I yeah, yeah. first like tell me that there's something wrong you know i like your approach you have just listened to episode 22 of the augmented podcast with host ronana unheim the topic was freeman's factory what is no code our guest was Mark Friedman, Lean Practice Leader at Tuit. In this conversation, which is the first episode of the new segment that we have called Friedman's Factory, which takes us deep into the shop floor philosophy of Kaizen, we introduced this new segment a month ago. In this episode of Friedman's Factory, we talked about no code in manufacturing. What is it? What existed before? And what difference does it make? And, and what about no code and low code? And, my takeaway is that no code for industrial applications is something truly special. Building on what we have, what we have come to know from contemporary software applications that don't have a learning curve. Industrial no code attempts the same thing, but with software written for the physical world, which is immeasurably harder to do because production cannot go down and you don't get second chances. I learned from Mark Friedman that Tulip's deeply humanistic approach to no-code is rooted in the shop floor experience, in trying to reflect but also question factory floor behavior. I am on a learning journey. I still want to understand more of the discrete tasks and functions that digital no-code apps make flow so natural. Work instructions, machine monitoring, and other things. As always, the depth in Friedman's message lies, it seems to me, in his insistence on experience before tools, understanding before action, and understanding people, and the reasons behind their current process way before introducing any kind of technology as a tool to simplify their life. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcasts.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 10, A Brief History of Manufacturing Software, episode six, Human-Robot Interaction Challenges, or episode one, Automation to Augmentation, the podcast vision to build a movement. Also, if you missed the introduction to Friedman's Factory, listen to episode 15, Friedman's Factory Introduction. Augmented. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 frontline operations.